listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. John chapter 12 this morning. Uh, this week again we're in the Gospel of John and next week we will be in the Gospel of John for Easter Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday and we're so, so we're going to look at this passage that deals specifically um, with Palm Sunday, the Sunday where Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and everybody is talking about Hosanna and calling him king and waving uh, palm branches, and uh, the Jews are thinking the king has finally come. He's going to enter the city. He's going to overthrow the Romans, and everything is going to be like it should be. All of our problems are going to be solved, and Jesus came to do anything but that. But John chapter 12 this morning, before we uh, look at the text specifically, these 19, first 19 verses of John chapter 12, just to give you an overview of the gospel of John. John's gospel is broken up into two parts. We see in chapters 1 to 10 the mission of Jesus. Jesus is on his mission. Jesus is proclaiming good news. But then when we come to chapters 11 and 12, those are the transitional chapters in the gospel of John. And they're transitional because in the 11th chapter, we see the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. This is the seventh miracle of Jesus in the gospel of John, the seventh major miracle of Jesus in the gospel of John. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And so we see Lazarus in chapter 11, and there's a lot that's said there about death and life. But then when we come to chapter 12, we see Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, him going to eat with uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and some amazing things taking pl place there in their house before they move on to Jerusalem, and Jesus goes into the city, and some things happen that we're going to try to unpack briefly this morning in the time um, that we have together. That's the transition. So here's the mission. Here's the transition, 11 and 12. We're going to be looking at that. And then when you begin in chapter 13 and go into to the end of the book, we uh, not only move from the mission, but now we see the passion of Jesus. And so uh, we're excited this morning to look at the text uh, of Scripture uh, in John chapter 12. I want to begin reading there in verse 1, and then we'll talk about uh, what the, the text has to say. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The scene shifts, though, in verse 4. It's interesting. But, contrast, let's move in a different direction. There's, there's something good happening here. And then all of a sudden, J Judas interjects uh, some scripture and some theology for them that comes against what maybe he's experiencing in his heart or maybe what his motives are. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, 
One of the disciples, I think the parentheses are interesting. In my Bible, there are these parentheses that sort of tell us that John knows what Judas was up to. And maybe everybody in the room knew what Judas was up to except Judas. And so, so we see in, in verse 4, um, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Again, under our breath, let's say this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. Deuteronomy chapter 15 but you do not always have me. Verse 9, when the large crowd, and we see all this conversation about the large crowd. The large crowd has been traveling with him now for some days on their way to Jerusalem. And as they travel to Jerusalem, the crowd is growing and it's growing and it's growing. And it finally erupts when there is the triumphal entry. Several mentions in the text of the large crowd. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on, on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now we see this contrast. The crowd that is, that is uh, in amazement and wonder and perhaps some looking for entertainment or shock value. So the chief priest, now we see the, the religious crowd. We see the institutional religious people. We see the Sanhedrin. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. What a tragedy. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that he had that, that, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written from Zechariah chapter 9. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey. His disciples did not understand these things at first, when Jesus, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What do we see in the text? And I have to just confess to you that what I see in the text um, is, it brings great conviction to my heart. Uh, I hope that you will let the Spirit of God use the text of Scripture to speak to your heart this morning. Um, I hope you're not just coming to check a box today. I, I hope you want to leave here with something from the text of Scripture. The first thing we see in the text is spontaneous Worship, or on my outline, it's a little more elaborate, spontaneous, sacrificial worship in verses 1 to 3. It is an uncontrollable response to redeeming love. It is an uncontrollable response to redeeming love. What are they doing? They're celebrating uh, Jesus, and they're celebrating, I believe, the resurrection or the, the coming out of the tomb of 
Lazarus, and we've got these details here. We see Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and there's mention of them over and over again, and we keep every time seeing them do the same things. Martha is always serving. Um, Mary is always worshiping, and right here, I believe we see Lazarus sitting there at the table, and I'm sure that everyone is enjoying this celebration. I'm sure there's plenty of food. Uh, I'm sure maybe they had some barbecue sauce on their beards. I'm sure there was a lot of laughter. I'm sure that it was loud. I'm sure that it was informal. I think everybody just had this great time gathered around the table. So much so that probably what we see Mary doing in the text went unnoticed by maybe some of the people there until the aroma filled the room. So we see this celebration, number one, but secondly, we see this overwhelming aroma of worship. And once Mary took this this ointment, this perfume, and she began to anoint the feet of Jesus. It says this aroma just captivated the room. In other words, something was happening in the room. Worship was going on in the room, and it was unavoidable. It was uninhibited. It was unlimited. It was absolutely sacrificial. She takes this this perfume, this nard, and it was probably a family heirloom. It probably originated in India. It was at least worth a year's wage. It was a cherished family possession, possibly passed down from generation to generation. And Mary determined that at this juncture in this narrative in what is happening in the life of Jesus and what is happening in the life of Mary, that Jesus was worth every drop of it. She saw in that moment the value of Jesus Christ. There was humble gratitude. What is she doing? She's anointing his feet. What is happening? What's going on inside of her? There obviously is humble gratitude. She's doing this in complete trust, recognizing that he is the Savior. She is doing it in reference, acknowledging that he, reverence, acknowledging that he is the Messiah. And she even broke with the customs of the Jews by letting her hair down. And it was probably rather lengthy. They didn't have all the different options of hairstyles that we have. And she is wiping his feet with her hair. This was absolute and total devotion. Mary knew at the core of her being who Jesus Christ was. There is this expensive and powerful perfume that was often used at the time of burial. And when somebody, somebody's family member died, what they would do is they would spare no expense at the funeral. And a lot of times uh, the funeral people take advantage of people's willingness to show their love through the expense that is laid out at the time of the funeral. But there is this expensive, powerful perfume that is generally used at the time of burial, but it is also used as a demonstration of love. Not to mention that they didn't have all the embalming techniques that we have today. And so the perfume and the spices were used to offset the decomposition of the aroma of death. I wonder if that's not why we send flowers, right? I think the beauty of flowers and new life blooming offsets the sometimes the picture of death that we see in a funeral home. But I've been to so many funeral homes that the scent of funeral flowers is not a positive scent to me because it simply reminds me of death. 
This same perfume was probably used to anoint Lazarus just a few days before when, when he died in chapter 11. It was probably some left later on to anoint Jesus when he died. And so this perfume has tremendous significance as we understand the gospel. This aroma that they are smelling in the house is the fragrance of death. It is the fragrance of sacrifice. It is the fragrance of love. It reminds me, as I think about it, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you'll indulge me for a second um, to, to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and listen to this. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Everywhere, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, the aroma of Christ to God through those that know him is unavoidable and it emanates from our lives. And there are those who smell this aroma and it becomes a, a fragrance and it represents life. And there are those who smell the aroma of Christ in us and it solidifies them in the death that they are in because they reject him. And so we see this happening here in John as this ointment is being put on the feet of Jesus, this perfume being put on the feet of Jesus Christ. This worship is the aroma of life. Yes, she is anointing Jesus in preparation for his death, but it is a death that will bring life, like the death of Lazarus was to put the, the character of Messiah on display. This is the Messiah. Lazarus rose from the dead. Jesus will be resurrected victorious over death. This is the aroma of life. It is the aroma of eternal life. It is the aroma of the only one who can die for our sins so that we might have life. So we see this spontaneous sacrificial Worship, And I must interject as we have considered that and we move into Judas beginning in verse number 4. Um, C.S. Lewis, and I'll paraphrase him, um, he said this, Whenever we are confronted with the love of God, it either pushes us to life or pushes us to death. And we see this reaction in Judas. Judas... The second thing I want you to see is the cynical, logical, scriptural response. The cynical, logical, scriptural response. Resurrection is being celebrated. Sacrificial worship is being initiated. The aroma of life is filling the room. There is a humble, vulnerable expression of worship that is being beautifully displayed right there in the house. But Verse 4 says, but... Judas, but Judas. We don't have to look too deeply in the text to understand that Judas and his reaction was one of indignation. It was one of criticism. It was one of superiority. Who is this 
Who is this lowly woman who has let down her hair and broken up this, this bottle or box of perfume and smearing it all over the feet of Jesus and wasting something? We've, we've got to, if we think mathematically, if you have money, you want to make more money. If you've got something of value, if you're going to trade it off, you need to trade it for something of of value and taking it and putting it all over the feet of Jesus didn't seem too valuable to Judas because Jesus was worth about 30 pieces of silver to Judas and he was worth everything to Mary and Judas we see his reaction to this act of worship right there in front of them. But Judas. But Judas. And then Judas comes up with this question. Why? Why are we doing this? Why is this ointment being wasted on Jesus? We're sitting around here at the table. There, there's, there's, there, there are the leg quarters that are hanging off the plate. Everybody has eaten mashed potatoes and green beans and there's still plenty in the pot and the crock pot mac and cheese is still half full. We've got plenty of food and there are poor people out there that haven't eaten. Why couldn't we take this ointment and sell it for a year's wage, 300 denarii, and we could feed a lot of people? We need to contrast, and I believe the text would call us to do that. The text puts this here and these details here for some reason, and we can't pass them over. We need to contrast the spontaneous worship versus the cynicism and contempt that we see in the text. They are both in the same place. They are both at the same event. They are both in the presence of Jesus one loves sacrificing everything for him, and one can do nothing but complain and betray. We can't miss that. We can't miss that. Life, here's Judas. Judas is a great mathematician. You don't have a treasurer that's not a great mathematician, Right? You don't have a CPA that's not good at math. You don't have a CPA that can add and subtract. They're, they're able to look at, okay, what is value and what is not value and how does all this add up? And so, so Judas is a mathematician, but let me just let you know, I was sitting with a couple this week doing premarital counseling and, and they're both highly intelligent people and they're trying to figure out how to make life work. And I had to tell them, marriage is not a math equation. One plus one doesn't equal two. Some folks will tell you, hey, you do the right things, you'll get the right results. But most folks that have tried the right things and didn't get the right results will tell you that that's not how life works. Life is not a math equation, especially with Jesus. Listen to me carefully as we've considered Mary and her worship and Judas and his cynicism. Please listen to me carefully this morning. Do not reduce the beauty and the mystery and the magnificence and the love of and love for Jesus to a mere straw man sequence of events that you can string together to make an argument or to win an argument. That's what Judas tried to do. He made it mathematical. He throws out Deuteronomy 15, and it is biblical, and it's logical, and any time we bring up Scripture, it's always spiritual. I was reading a biography this week, and one writer was quoting another writer, and I would tell you what his name is, but I can't pronounce it. 
He said, it is by logic that we prove. And there's nothing wrong with logic. And there's nothing wrong with reason. And I love truth. It is by logic that we prove. But by intuition that we discover. In other words, when it comes to these terms of understanding and worshiping Jesus, something better be going much deeper inside of you than just what's happening in your brain or what you're saying out of your mouth. Something better be churning deep within your soul so that it becomes a part of who you are. Because, folks, listen, we can never worship Jesus just by getting the information right. When we come to Christ, he gives us a new nature. We are new people. We have the nature of God dwelling in us. And Judas was saying all the right things. And that may have sounded impressive to some. But he didn't know Jesus deep inside the recesses of his being. So that without him having written words on a page and information and him speaking out of his mouth, that is as far as it went, it never got to the interior of his being and he was repulsed at the worship of Jesus Christ. He was repulsed at the worship of Jesus Christ. You see, Mary knew something deep in her soul that the betrayer could not fathom. She knew the beauty and love of Jesus Christ. Judas was living and speaking out of his head. He believed Jesus was, like I said earlier, worth 30 pieces of silver. She was living out of an understanding that radically flooded her heart and soul. And she knew that Jesus was worth everything that she had and all that she was. And so she worshiped and Judas smugly and arrogantly introduced a different aroma into the room and it wasn't good. Why, he said. It wasn't a real question. It wasn't genuine curiosity. He was speaking simply to capture the attention of the room, and he was setting things up to disparage the worshiper and to exalt the betrayer. Why didn't we sell this? Why, didn't, why are we using this for worship? Here's what he's saying. Watch. What? Practical good can come out of something so emotive and intuitive as somebody worshiping Jesus from the depth of their soul and giving him everything. Why is she wasting this on Jesus? Judah was technically right. Judas was technically right, by the way. Unfortunately for him, he was. Absolutely and completely unaware of himself. Judas is standing up and speaking, and they're like, hey, he's the guy that's got his hands in the treasury. He's the one that's, he's the one that's stealing. He's the one that's, that's, that's planning on betraying Jesus. He was technically right, but, 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 and he thought he sounded good, but he was completely oblivious to the fact that everyone could see right through him that he was a crook. And let me warn us all as we gather here this morning, you can be technically right and spiritually dead and stink to high heaven. And we see two completely different aromas 
in the room now at this point. You can be technically right and spiritually dead and stink to high heaven, and I believe that is what John wants us to see. He's contrasting life and death. To be lost is to be spiritually dead. We can know facts and we can say the right things and even quote scripture and we can still be spiritually dead. To be spiritually dead is to be lost. To be saved is to be spiritually alive. And Mary was alive and Judas was dead and Mary in her spiritual aliveness was focused on Jesus and Judas who was one of the disciples and who had a card attached to a lanyard walking around with it around his neck was focused on Mary and trying to figure out how he could discredit her and her worship. Mary was alive and Judas was dead and the clear giveaway was their impact on the room. The emanating aroma and their understanding of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were looking at the same thing, and they saw something completely different, and that's the difference in life and death. I'll ask you as I move on to the next point by way of application. What aroma comes out of you? Can we just, can we just sit there for a minute? What aroma comes out of you? Ah, where, you where are you getting this aroma stuff? Uh, you could go over to Galatians 5 and you could talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? This, this, this aroma that flows out of the life of the believer by virtue of the presence of Christ is the fruit of the Spirit. So what's, what's flowing out of you, what's flowing out of me. This is so convicting. What aroma fills the room when you show up? If a scented candle were to be named after you, what would it be? What is your impact on a gathered body as it gathered, as it gathers for worship? I couldn't help this week. I've just been thinking, and you may just completely disagree with me. That's okay. This is very subjective what I'm fixing to say. But, you know, I, I just used to love to see Georgette walking here worship because I knew life wasn't easy and I loved to see Georgette as we watched her body just dwindle away and she was uh, mostly this this you know skeleton this very thin woman and she would sit down here and I would watch her raise her hands in worship because I knew that she was reaching out for and grabbing a hold of the most valuable thing in her life and if she had not had Jesus she realized that she would have had nothing and she's with him now, praise the Lord. There, there, was, there was something that was spiritually aromatic. Yes, yeah, she had a raspy voice. Yes, yeah, she was opinionated. But there was just an aroma when she came and gathered. And she, if you knew Georgette, you know that she loved you. This is convicting. It is for me anyway. Me and my wife went to a family reunion, or a family reunion, a, a class reunion, and I may have told you this before, but most of you weren't here when I said it, so you're hearing it for the first time. And my classmates got to talk, and Jesse Bullard got to talking, and he said, you know what? He said, 
He said, we never knew what kind of day it was going to be for our class until Mark showed up. Would you please shut up? My wife doesn't. My wife doesn't need to hear this. She thinks all of these developments are recent. But I came in with a bad aroma. I went to the, I went to the gastroenterologist. I, forgive me, as you get older, you're going to have to have colonoscopy at some point. I hate to talk about that. I know that's a personal issue. But here I am going to an office to see somebody that knows something about aroma, Okay. And they made me wait in the lobby for an hour. And then they made me wait in the room for an hour. And I literally was so incensed that I was walking out of the hallway, looking down the hallway. And when he walked in the room, he's reading his chart. And he looked down at his chart and he's talking to me. He said, I was just down the hall trying to find out if this person had a colon or not. He looked up at me and he saw the expression on my face. And he sensed the aroma that was coming out of me as I stood there in the room. And it shocked him. And he, he was a little short guy. And he put both his hands up on my shoulders. And he said, you need to calm down. (laughs) And I don't know if he was a Muslim. I don't know if he was a Hindu. I don't know what he believed. But here's what I would say in that moment. He was a better Christian than me. Now, I'm not disputing the veracity and the, I'm I'm not, the only way to be saved is Jesus, right? But I'm telling you, if you're going to measure it by aroma, me as a preacher of the gospel, and somebody says that they know Jesus, the aroma that was coming out of me was a whole lot different than the aroma that was coming out of him. That's so, that's so convicting. We stay in a rented place, and I don't know if my landlord goes to church. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about his spiritual life, but he's so nice. He's so kind. There, there's a different aroma that comes out of him than many times comes out of me. A couple of weeks ago, we had somebody coming over to see us, and they were setting up for the race, and they had all these guards down at the end of the road, and I go down to the lobby, and I'm panicking. I'm like, I've got people coming over here at noon. These folks have got to be able to come in. I hope they don't have to buy a $150 race ticket to be able to get up to our condominium so that we can just eat of the $20 worth of pizza together. Somebody called him. I didn't want him to call him. He called me. He's like, hey, Mark, what's going on? His name's Mark as well. I worry about me sometimes because the aroma that comes out of me doesn't look like this aroma that filled the room, this aroma of worship. My grandson fixed these two tiles. (laughs) Mine and Mandy's look completely different. Oh, Mandy's, he's got like sweet. Love, giving. He didn't really put what he wanted to put on mine. You know what he wanted to put on mine? He wanted to put strict. I'm a policeman. You're going to obey. I don't want you to run out of the road and get hit by a car. I want to protect your life. Right? I looked at hers, and I looked at mine, and I thought, I wonder what's coming out. Do you ever wonder what's coming out of you? And the impact of our aroma as it comes out of us has its, does its greatest good or its greatest damage within the walls of our home. 
whatever this, whatever this energy is, whether you, you've got the spirit of J Judas, the, com the complaining spirit, the contempt-filled spirit, the condescending spirit, the gossip spirit, the critical spirit, it, it, is, it, is, it is an aroma or a stench that, that, that just fills your home. Talking with someone yesterday, and we talked about when I was growing up, both my parents smoked. And we didn't have air conditioning. And we'd ride down the road with all the windows up on the car. I can see my dad now with, you know, his hands on 10 and 2, and I can see a cigarette right there. And, and I can just see the smoke swirling around. And every time we got somewhere, everybody knew, you know, we never cracked the windows to let the smoke out. I'm probably going to die from secondhand smoke. Probably had enough firsthand smoke to die at some point in my life. But you get out, and we walk, and, and people are like, there's an aroma there. There's an aroma. And I just want to, I want to challenge you this morning to examine your heart. And it all begins not with us trying to fabricate an aroma, not with us going to wherever you can get the best perfume and put that on. It begins with us determining what's really valuable to us. And Mary's, the aroma that filled the room was precipitated upon her value for Jesus Christ and her love from him and her love for him in that moment. And that then took her to a place where she was able to focus exclusively on him, but it was able to impact everybody around her. The third thing we see, and I'll hasten this morning, is that human curiosity and amazement do not constitute salvation or worship. See that in verses 9 to 18. I mentioned as I read through all the people that he's dealing with and all the people that are gathering and all the people that are excited. I don't know if this was like a circus to them. I don't know if a guy raised from the dead was like a freak show. I'm sure some people thought this must be the Messiah. Only the Messiah can do what this man is doing. But some people were just caught up in the crowd. We know that because when they got to Jerusalem, they're saying Hosanna. When they were saying Hosanna and waving palm branches, they, they were not worshiping him from Psalm 118. What actually they were doing is they were waving the palm branches like the flags since the Maccabean revolt and they were doing it from a nationalistic perspective they were doing it from the the point of the success of their nation and their hatred for Rome and their desire for Messiah to come and overthrow Rome so they were caught up into something that could not have been completely spiritual at that time you may be here today out of curiosity I've got a mirror, so I know you're not here out of amazement. But your church attendance or your association with religious things does not save you. It's only a relationship. It's only understanding who Jesus is. It's only understanding that he, he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when, when I trust his death for my sin in my place, he comes into my life, gives me his nature, and changes me completely from the inside out. And that radical transformation then dictates the aroma that I take with me everywhere that I go. Human curiosity and amazement do not constitute salvation and worship. Number four from the text, the biggest threat to life like I want it is Jesus Christ. 
Think about that. The biggest threat to life like I want it is Jesus Christ. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the religious crowd. We're talking about the Pharisees. The biggest threat to life like I want it is Jesus Christ. If, if you want a, a, a life that, that is rooted in anything but sacrificial worship of him, recognizing him as the greatest value, putting him at the center of your being, if you want anything but that, Jesus is going to get in your way. Because he calls on us to forsake ourselves. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. He calls on us to take up a cross. He calls on us to follow him. The, the promise of Jesus Christ is not when you get in a crisis or when your situation stinks, he's all of a sudden going to sprinkle some Jesus salt on your life and things are going to get better. Jesus says, die to yourself. Renounce yourself. Come and follow me. The biggest threat to life like I wanted is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus gets in our way, we will always seek to kill him. That's what's going on with the Sanhedrin. That's what's going on with the people of the book. That's what's going on with the religious crowd. Jesus was in their way, and they said, you know what, we've got to get rid of Jesus. And by the way, if we're going to get rid of the residue of Jesus, we've got to get rid of Lazarus too. We've, we have got to somehow recapture the minds of these weak people. They're looking at Jesus. They're looking at Lazarus. They're believing the gospel. They're following Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus. What can we do? Jesus must be out of our life and out of our way. That's what persecution is. That's why someone would say, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to kill innocent people because that church is representative of Jesus Christ. And they, by the way, were telling me some things that were inconsistent with who I want to be. And I can't get, get my conscience to shut up because there's a law written on my heart. I can't make it be quiet. And I've got to get it to shut up. The biggest threat to life like I wanted is Jesus Christ. We will always seek to kill God if he gets in our way. Number five. Our biggest problem is not people or politics or national identity. This is what they thought. They thought the Romans are our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not which political side of the aisle, and I'm all into, I love, uh, you want to have a good political conversation. Uh, I love our nation. Our nation is headed in the wrong direction. I wish it was headed in a different direction. I wish those of you that have, didn't have the privilege of growing up in the 80s, I wish you could go back. It was a glorious time. Things were completely different. Um, and if you weren't there like I was, you don't understand anything about it. And the stuff you're reading isn't true. Those who want to deconstruct history got it wrong. But that's not our biggest problem. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is sin. My biggest problem is sin. Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome or Russia. Don't miss that. There is a bigger problem. Jesus came to conquer sin because as long as I'm in my sin, I'm dead. And as long as I'm dead, I don't have life. But it's when I trust Christ who deals with my sin that I now have life. And these are the issues that we're dealing with. It's quite simple. It's either you're dead or you're alive. And if you're dead, you smell like it. 
And if you're alive, you smell like it. If you're dead, there is an aroma that emanates from your life. And if you are alive, there is an aroma that emanates from your life. Final, final, final thought. If you really want to find the truth that sets you free, if you really want to find life, listen carefully. If you really want to find the truth that sets you free, if you really want to find life, you you can. I stand before you today and t- to tell you that you can be alive today. You can be free from sin today. In fact, listen to me carefully. If, if, if you must deny truth, you must deny history, you must deny scripture, you must deny prophecy in order to miss the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. You've got to wake up in the morning if you live in denial of your need for Jesus Christ. If you choose or want to stay in death this morning, if that's where you want to live and you want to walk out of here and say, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard, what that guy was saying. Here's what I'm telling you. You have to deny truth. You have to deny history. You have to deny scripture. You have to deny prophecy in order to miss the one who stood and said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus was so unusual. He said, where do you get this from? I get it from Jesus riding into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry when everybody says, here comes the king. Hosanna, save us, save us, save us. Defeat the Romes. Go sit on the throne. And he comes riding in on a donkey. Not a stallion. He's not not coming in on a bulletproof suburban. Not flying in on Air Force One. He's he's riding into town on a donkey, and you you can't miss it. Miss this. Here's the Creator and the Sustainer, the one who said, "All authority has been given unto me." He he's the Son of God. He was born of a virgin. He was born according to prophetic scripture. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's confounded the greatest philosophical and theological scholars that the world has ever known. And he could have overthrown the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Romans with the simple exercise of his vocal cords. Yet Scripture has Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem right on time, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, according to ancient prophecy, on a donkey. Who who does that? This is so unusual. The people are so enraptured. Save us. Yet Jesus comes in humility on a donkey. Because Jesus is not coming to dominate. Jesus is coming to die. He's coming to die so that we can be set free from sin and death. And that is our greatest enemy. Jesus doesn't come to take. You've never known a political ruler or a world ruler like him. He doesn't come to take. He comes to give. He doesn't come to enslave. He comes to set free. He doesn't come to incite chaos. He comes to bring peace. He doesn't come to kill. He comes to die. He doesn't bring the threat of death to secure complicity. He brings the promise of life to evoke love and worship. And when you know him, he changes everything. And when you know him, he changes everything.
you're apart from Jesus Christ, you are lost. And you are dead this morning. And quite frankly, I don't want to offend you, but you don't have a clue. You may be religious and scriptural. You may be logical and powerful. But if you don't have Christ, you are emanating the aroma of death. And I beg of you this morning to come to Jesus. John chapter 6, Jesus said, are you guys going away too? And they're like, where else are we going to go to find the words of life? You can go everywhere. You can research everything. But you're only going to go down a path that's going to lead you to a place of death. And there is only one path that leads to life. And that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, hey, you're trying to squeeze life out of everything and it ain't working. He said, come unto me all you that, are labor, that labor and are heavy laden. He said, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Just come and rest. I've done it all. Just trust me. When, when you come to him and you enter into that rest, you'll have the energy to say, I just want to worship you. I just want to sit at your feet. And the aroma of Christ will fill the room. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. And if you are not in Christ, you are under the influence of the thief who comes to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. There's life and death this morning and life is found in Christ alone. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you don't know Christ, I invite you to come to him. And if you do know Christ... I'd like for you to think about your aroma. I'd like for you to think about your aroma. And I don't want you to go get some spiritual right garden. Right? I want you to think about your heart. I want you to think about what's coming out of you. I want you to think about how others might be experiencing you this morning. And I want you to be concerned or fearful if you're riding in traffic and the person behind you or trying to pass you or in front of you thinks you're crazy what is that coming out of you or if you do wait at the doctor for two hours and he's wondering what is up what do you do sir oh you're a pastor Or when you're in a conversation in life group and you want to prove somebody wrong because you got to be right. Every Sunday we remember Jesus. We remember his death. We remember his burial. We remember his resurrection. We remember his hopefully soon return. Amen. Can I get an amen? Hopefully, his soon return. And so we take a piece of bread and we take the juice and we dip the bread in the juice and it represents his body and his blood. We're looking back to see the price that was paid for our sin. We're standing here today recognizing we have an advocate with us who is Jesus Christ. He stands with us. He represents us. What a beautiful picture as an advocate. He speaks for us. When we go stand with Jesus and we're on trial, he represents us, and oh, he represents us so much better than we represent ourselves. So glad he represents me.
I'd make a mess of it. But we're looking forward. We're looking forward. You see, Mary was looking forward. She could have thought, man, if I give up this ointment, what am I going to have left? But when we look forward to Jesus coming back, we give up everything. Because that's all we have left. That's all we have left is Jesus coming back. Would you this morning examine your heart? And would you, as you get out of your seat and walk down the aisle and take this bread and gather in groups and pray, would, would, would you let your heart and your mind go to Jesus? And would you, from the depth of your being, worship him? And may you and your wife or you and your group, may y'all experience the aroma of Christ this morning as you stand there together and pray. Father, bless us as we have listened to your word and considered why you came. And bless us as we examine our own hearts. I pray you would help me. It's so easy to get ready for Sunday and try to be all spiritual. And then forget all about it when we hear the door latch as we walk out. And I pray that we would just take something with us this week that would change how we think, that would change how we live, that would change how we love, that would change how we worship, and that would change how people experience us as we walk out these doors this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.